Dominic is um, a Cub Scout. He's a Tiger Cub. This was not the original plan. Um, I grew up going to Scouts. My brother and my father are Eagle Scouts. I'm not an Eagle Scout. Um, I did not did not finish, but um, it was like I didn't want to force pressure into doing this. This kind of like okay, I want to see what happens. And he, a friend, invited him to Scout, Cub Scouts. He loved it because it's just like kids running around in circles. Um, basically, especially at that age. Now they have like kindergarten ones, and so it's the Lion Cup, and it's like even more so of just running around in circles. Um, like I think the first event we went on was a camping trip, but it was it was good because Dominic had more experience than most of the adults on the camping trip going camping. So they would come up to him and like, what, what should I do here? Not really, but they should have. They would put their tits up faster. Um, but, so. Technically, I am responsible for this, this pack because it's oh. chartered out of Berkeley. And so I am the, um, the according like the liable agent involved in these kids running in circles. That's right. Uh, but one, of the, one of the benefits of this is that whenever they were like, now we need it, we need an assistant cub master, we need someone to help out. I was like, gee, sorry, I'd love to. <laughs> um, but I can't. Like it's, I'm already responsible, so I can't be in that position. And I thought, like, yes, I get a way out. I can be nice about it. Unfortunately, they also asked Alina, and so she had accepted the position. <laughs> so my wife, with zero experience with scouting at any level ever in her life, is now the assistant cub master. Last week, last week, um, or maybe it was two weeks ago, she had to go on a camping trip, um, which she's done before, but not with a bunch of scouty people. Um, so that was an interesting experience. Um, we're, we're doing okay with that, but uh, every every time we have a meeting, they start with uh, the Pledge of Allegiance and a Scout Oath, I think is what it's called. Um, and it's, it's ironic because I'm the only one who actually knows it. <laughs> and I get up there and then like, the kids start mumbling it through and I'm, like, I'm the one who helps them, not the Packmaster or, or the other people. Um, and then one of, the, one of the, the mottos of Scouts is do a good turn daily. And it's you know, for a kindergarten or a first grader, this is like, this is really good. It's just, you know, they're not really thinking about other people. Like, six-year-olds are not generally thoughtful of everyone in the world. Um, they're very focused on themselves. They're learning. They're, their brains are expanding. They're, they're getting into these places. Dominic is really, you know, I think he's super special and the greatest six-year-old in the world. But, um, <laughs> like, it's still, like, thinking about, you know, the consequences of your actions and thinking of those things. And he's learning how to do it. So having this prompt, do a good turn daily, can be helpful. It can also be kind of limiting in another perspective of, okay, I've checked off my list of doing something good, now I can be selfish the rest of the day and I don't have to worry about it. Yes. Um, and especially in this, this testing environment where kids are used to and training to check things off that they have to do, it's, it can easily drift into this. And I wanted, I wanted to think about that, that way that we can look at doing good or serving others from two different perspectives. Um, my friends, we're continuing our series on the general rules of, of John Wesley. And um, last week we spoke about the first general rule, do, um, do no harm. We summarized it and handed out these, these rulers to all of those who are here. I have more rulers for people who didn't get rulers last time. We got lots of rulers. Um, they say love, serve, grow. It's a summation of, of the general rules. And part of the point of this is that usually when we think of rules, we think of things we can or can't do, or should or should not do. When in Wesley's um, case, it was really a measurement. A rule is what you measure yourself against. 
it wasn't just like do this, don't do that. It's like how how can I understand whether or not I'm I'm following what God has for me? What are the ways? What are the steps that I can take? How can I measure if I'm living up to what God has for me? And so again, the first one was to do um, do no harm. The second one is to do all the good you can. Not just do a good turn. Do all the good you can. And that's, that can be a challenging and sometimes even a suffocating thing. And it, but we, we get to a stark perspective of that with the scripture for today. In, in Luke chapter 16, it's a, it's a really interesting one. <laughs> this Lazarus and the rich man. The first interesting thing about the passage is that the, the rich man is not named. This is not a common thing in ancient literature. Usually, if someone has a lot of money, they have a very long name, and it's really important to say their name. And they, um, in, in Rome, they would have, like, three names, and they'd have, like, the family name, the kind of family name, and then, like, the real family name. And so it was, like, all different levels of, of names in that kind of way, and how you were known in this way. And most people would also have another name on top of it, it the way of, like, Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Elder, and just ways of, of describing. But this person has no name. In the Middle Ages, there's a lot of paintings about Lazarus and, and Dives, or Dives, it's sometimes pronounced, it's, but it's just the Latin word for rich. And so he still doesn't have a name. This interesting contrast of the named poor person at the gate and, and the rich person without a name. The next interesting thing is that Lazarus is the Greek version of Eleazar. And so it was a common name. This is not the Lazarus of Mary and Martha, um, the Lazarus that Jesus brings back from the dead. This is just like Joe down the street. It was that kind of name. Eleazar, though, has an interesting meaning. It means God has helped. God has helped. And so the person on the gate, covered in sores, weak, hungry for the bread of the dogs, is the one named God has helped. And the rich person dining with, the, with purple, which is always a sign of wealth. Purple only comes from these special snails on the Mediterranean coast. Um, and it was, like, it was the most expensive thing you could find was purple dye. That's why the Roman emperors had it. It was really, really unique, exorbitantly expensive. Like you could trade like a mansion for um, a whole cloth of purple dye. And so this person dressed in purple. Usually, society would think, now that is a person who God has helped. That is a person who God has, has given wealth to and multitude of gifts. But Lazarus, Eliezer, God has helped. This inversion of expectations. And then, one of the final things that I think is really interesting, and all of these are interesting because they're things that I've, I've discovered from this passage, reading it again this time. Um, as a preacher, you know, this comes in the lectionary every three years. So I preached about this three years ago. Um, I did not look at my notes for that. But it's like, what, are, what is interesting about this is the fact that, that the rich man is not like particularly cruel to Lazarus. He does not know he exists. He is entirely oblivious to this man's existence. Until the roles are reversed. And he is, he is suffering and he looks up. And he sees Lazarus and like, gosh, couldn't you help me? So these, these inversions in this, this stark contrast, this vision of 
of Abraham's bosom and Hades and, and pain and suffering. It's kind of hard to, to grasp. It's one of these passages as well that's almost too simple that over the years Christians have kind of over-interpreted it and over-metaphorized it. But it's a pretty, Jesus is speaking pretty concretely and pretty directly about how to live and where God is and how to serve and love God. And so, so we're, we're left with this. We, we have to be unsettled with it. And the unsettling continues. And when we, we realize that God is starkly present in one place and not present in the other. God is present with Lazarus, with the sores, with his hunger outside the gates. And God is not really that present with a rich man. We're in a very, very different way. Whereas for most of us, I would assume that most of us do not long for a life of having sores on the side of the road and being starving. That's not what we think a good life is made of. That is not what we hope for, what we dream of for our family. That's a, none of us with, with children hope for our children to live on the side of the road with sores, starving. That is not a desire of my heart. And yet, we have the starkness of this passage that God is present with Lazarus in a way that God is not present with the rich man. It's, it's hard to grapple with. It's hard to, to deal with. God is present with Lazarus. This is the starkness of the parable and the afterlife inversion. We are with God when we are with those whom the world demeans and dismisses. And we are not with God in any way the same capacity when we are with the people who the world lifts up and praises and sets aside and says that this is good. There's a, there's a close connection to this parable and the parable of, of the rich man who builds the many houses and says to himself and builds storehouses and storehouses and says, self, you have done well. <laughs> and then even that night, his soul is taken from him. And what does he have to gain? But this one, with the, the comparison, it somehow, at least for me, seems harder, harder to handle. But this gets to the point of grace. That grace is most present when it is hardest to see. And that, that I mean, in my life, I've, I've seen that. I think I've seen, many of you have seen that and shared that with me. But we don't see grace most clearly when all the things in our life are going well, but when, when we are hit by struggle. It's in those, those, not in the chasms that we find, but in those small gaps that we can see that God is truly present. One of, um, one of my, my teachers wrote on, on, about service and said, devotion to neighbor implies thankless tasks, as we say. And that's what it usually does. Usually, when you think about serving others, when you think about doing good, you think about them as, as thankless tasks. Or I do. And I mean, I think at some point, at the end of the day, you're doing something not to be thanked in that kind of way. But as their relevance for, to caring for the actual person becomes gradually more perceptible, what is thankless is suffused with grace. It is in that gap that we open up to our neighbor that God enters in. It is in that gap of offering ourselves for others. It is in that gap, that step of faith, where we see God 
in Lazarus on the side of the road, that we become suffused, infused, emerged in grace, that the Holy Spirit enters in. And what at first seems thankless and full of, of drudgery is filled with a lightness of being that is not present at the rich man's table, that is not present there, that is also impossible to communicate. It is hard to communicate that experience in words, that transformation of seeing Jesus in someone like Lazarus. It is an act of faith. It is as much an act of faith as coming to the table for communion, as seeing Jesus in the bread and the wine. It is a step of faith, but it is a response to what God has already done. The Wesleyan, um, Wesleyan movement speaks of grace in multiple ways. The first step of grace is called prevenient grace. The idea that God has been present with each of us from before we were aware of it. The power of that, that we do not have to take the first step towards God. God has already taken that step towards us. And we receive it and respond to it. From even before we are aware of it, that, that amazing belief. I love it. It's so scriptural, but I see it in, in children. I see it in the infant crying that God is truly with them, that God is not absent from them in a way. Before baptism, before awareness, God is present in a beautiful and amazing way and will stay with them. As well, we believe in justifying grace, that there is a moment when God allows people to stand upright. And to see as they were made to see. But the story does not end there. The story of God's presence in our life does not end there. Instead, we use this language of sanctification, of being made holy, that God is with us as we continue to grow. And as we grow, growing in faith is not about getting taller in faith. Growing in faith is not about building more storehouses of faith. It's about becoming more yourself. Growing in faith is becoming more of who you were created to be. That's what the general rules are for. They're about a response to what God has done in your life. Service at its best begins as a response to what God has done. I will do this thing that otherwise I would not do because of who God is. Service as well is a, is a way of self-discovery. You discover who you really are when you start caring for people. You don't have to. Oftentimes, in, in pastoral care situations, I will encourage people, like, what are you doing for others? And there's a consistency that many times, when I'm having a conversation of someone going through a really hard time in their life, or they don't know what to do, or they're trying to discern what to do next, they're not stepping out of their world. And what serving others, what taking that moment to do all the good you can with everyone you can does is it takes you out of your head. You realize that you are not the center of the world and your problems are not the greatest things in the world. And it doesn't answer it. This has happened with people whose, whose spouses have left them. That doesn't make their spouse come back or resolve the situation if they're serving others. It just reframes it. Reframes the situation. Helps them to open up and let grace enter in a new way. When we close ourselves off to serving others, when we say, I'm not the kind of person who does this, I'm not the kind of person who does that, we close ourselves off to the Spirit entering us in a new way. 
We, say, we are saying to ourselves, I am finished. I do not need that kind of love in my life. Service is also a way to see Jesus. In much the same way as seeing Jesus at the table, as seeing Jesus in corporate worship, and seeing Jesus in praising, it is a way that God is present. That God is present in Lazarus on the side of the road with the sores. And that takes a step of faith. That takes a lot of faith, my brothers and sisters. It is not an easy thing to do. It is not a simple thing to do. As well, there are, there are stories of the world about how it can't be true. Just as there are stories of the world saying that Jesus cannot be present in the bread and the wine. Telling us that it's foolish for Christians to believe this thing. And so we take a step of faith. What is often hidden, though, about service about, about this, this act of, of offering ourselves for others and caring for others is that it is, it is joyful. What seems at first thankless and drudgery emerges into joy, expands into joy. Because as our heart expands for others, God enters our heart and continues to grow and continues to evacuate all those things from our heart that are not Love. Again, one of my teachers said, once spoke about joy. Joy is the unexpected arrival in me and inside of me of an improvised guest, the Holy Spirit, whom I am incapable of receiving, but who makes me capable of receiving such a guest by expanding me. When I receive such a guest, he receives himself and me by initiating me into new dimensions of myself. This is not just joy of serving others. This is all joy. All joy of any kind is God with us. The joy of seeing a loved one who you haven't seen in a long time. The joy of of the birth of a grandchild. The joy of receiving great news is God being present with you. And so often we limit our joys to those things that we can control. But there, there, is, there is such a joy God offers for us in offering ourselves for others. There is a power in that that cannot be contained. The transformed life of grace. And the transformed life, that's so important, the transformed life of grace sees infinite joy in Lazarus sitting by the gate. And sees sorrow and pity for the rich man at the table with his silks and his purple, with his servants and his easy life. There's pity there because the transformed life of, of Jesus sees the emptiness there. Sees the emptiness of the person who tries to fill their needs with stuff, with fill their needs with status, and then realizing that we do not need that. That God offers us a life, and we don't have to be the rich person in order to receive it. We don't have to be the CEO of our company. We don't have to be the president or the governor. We don't have to be in these high-status situations to receive God's grace. We don't have to walk to receive God's grace. We don't have to speak in the way that people want us to to receive God's grace. We don't have to hear or see to receive God's grace. It is offered to us freely. Most present in those most demeaned in this world. And so for any of us who have been blessed in any ways 
The way we seek God is not to try and seek more power, but to seek to offer ourselves to others in this world. Leviticus 19.18, the first passage that Julie read, is usually not quoted from Leviticus, but from the Gospels. It is the second love commandment. It is what Jesus says when he's asked, what is, what is the most important law? And the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the second, likewise, to love your neighbor as yourself. What is going on here in, this, in Leviticus 19, what goes on with Jesus is, is the P word. People don't like in, in church. It's the politics word. And it's not about political parties or voting. It's about how we relate to other people. Politics is how bodies connect and combine. And what Jesus shares from Leviticus is that, is that Christian politics do not begin with I. Whoever is talking, they begin with our neighbor and how we are to see our neighbor. And this is a challenge in this world of, of self-reliance, in this country of self-reliance, that where, where my interests are, I, I am so much more aware of my own interests than other people's interests, but God pushes us, pushes us externally, how we relate to other people. As well, so, so what for it now? Because usually when we talk about, about doing good and, and serving others, it's like, you know, it's the preacher walking around with a ruler saying how everyone's not doing their part. And I don't want to do that. That's not the kind of ruler that we have. That's not the point. The point is not to measure other people with this, but to measure ourselves. What are we doing? What am I doing? How have I responded to God's grace? Am I responding to the miracle of the resurrection in an adequate way? Am I responding to the miracle that I can see clearly that God loves me? Am I living into that every day? One of the things we do as a church is we offer opportunities of serving our neighbors. We offer opportunities in, in taking care of, of, this, of this space, of, of taking care of, of the facilities, of taking care of... Um, we had a bunch of people here on, on Wednesday, preachers all over the, the district, and there were folks here who came and brought what wonderful food, and were here to greet, and that was wonderful, and they took that time to offer themselves. We have, we have missions to our neighbors. We have this, this plus one program, which is wonderful, where we get to give away like three grand a month to, to anyone. And it's not our money, which is easier to do. Because um, <laughs> there really is, there's a limitless need of people in our community with utility bills. It's, it's phenomenal. Talk to any of the people who come and help for that. That there's, most of the time, there's people with $600 owed or $2,000 owed. Sometimes it's like $5,000 owed to the city of Austin. And they're working on it. We can just do a little part, but we can do that part. And we can take that time and have that conversation. This church is privileged with an amazing... This church is privileged with an amazing history of service in what we've called our work corner ministry over the years. And so for, for decades... The church has done this. There have been people at this church bringing eggs, bringing five dozen eggs and a whole bunch of tortillas, and, and others coming and cooking those eggs in the morning and taking them downtown. Um, taking them downtown from before there was Austin Resource for the Home, before there was the Arch, before there was the Salvation Army down there, Berkeley was going down there and offering food to people. And the work corner is something that we as a church need to discern whether or not we can continue doing this. 
That we have, we have a number of wonderful volunteers who get up and do that almost every Sunday, rain or shine. But there's been a lot of volunteers who have been doing that for a long time. And they can't continue forever. And that's okay. And it would be okay to say that we did this ministry for a long time. And we don't need to always be the ones who do all the things. But it is an opportunity to serve our neighbor. It is a way of, of, of meeting people in spaces that are not comfortable. And so these are, these are opportunities of grace. The work corner cannot be a burden. If it becomes a burden that nobody wants to fill the spots and Alina is doing every single shift, um, which she was there this morning, um, and she fills in a lot. And I, I love her and I'm grateful for that. But then that we, can't, we can't sustain that. And it is okay. We will find other things. But I'm, I'm just sharing this. Is, this is something that we are already doing. We have new opportunities emerging at Berkeley with relationships with, with Crockett and with Cunningham and with other schools of, of meeting the needs of homeless youth, of meeting new needs, of finding new relationships. We're seeking these out. But it doesn't have to have the imprimatur of the church for you to love your neighbor. You don't need to wait around for someone else to tell you what to do to care for people around you. In fact, it's probably a lot. You're probably going to go a lot further if you don't wait around, if you don't do what your, your preacher tells you to do. If you find something that you care about, if you find a neighbor that you care about. And usually, you know, Jesus always sent people out in twos, in pairs. And so as well, it's not something for, it's on your shoulders individually. Even more so, it is not your job to save the world. You're not, Jesus doesn't send us out to save people, but to point to the one who does. And that begins with sharing a cup of water. That begins with, with meeting a need. But it does not mean giving up so that you lose yourself in that. But to point to others, to be with another person so you can, you can assess, like, how did that conversation go? That was weird. Uh, what was that? So you can, because usually when you talk about, when you go and, and try and meet your neighbor, when you go and try and find Jesus in the spot where Lazarus is, it is not like a common conversation. It's not going to respond in the same way. That's what it, it takes that step of faith. My brothers and sisters, it is not an easy thing to step into faith. But neither was it an easy thing for God to send his son for us. That is, how, that is where we begin our response, that God loves the world so much that he gave his son so that whomever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so we can, we can pretend that that eternal life just starts a long time from now. We can do our good turn today and then go back to our selfish ways. Or we can take the measurement of where we are with God. We can say, am I loving the Lord? Am I loving my neighbor by doing no harm? Am I doing all the good I can? Dear Lord, give me the grace. Because only by grace... Can we see Jesus? Only by faith can we see Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.